Uh, we are going to be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Uh, as I mentioned, Todd has an outline there for you, um, and uh, hopefully that'll help uh, to follow along. Let's go ahead and begin uh, with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your continued kindness and faithfulness to us. We thank you so much for the many riches that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you continually reveal yourself to be a faithful God. We pray that you might help us to understand and to apply the truths uh, before us in the passage. I pray that the passage would be clear, that my preaching would not um, muddy the passage, but would bring clarity to it and understanding. I pray that you might help us to submit to all that we find in it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, from the beginning of time, God has baked into the universe a principle that cannot be revoked. And that principle is that all of creation, wherever you go in the created world, you will discover that God has made it so that all of creation will reproduce after its own kind. In Genesis chapter 1, for instance, we hear the creation accounts and the repeated phrase, according to its kind. Um, And we've been over this recently even. Dogs produce dogs, and cats produce cats, and so on. And if you were with us far enough back when I preached through Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, you'll remember that this was a phrase, according to its own kind, which is a phrase that I emphasized at that time, specifically as as, um, a foundation for God's literal creation of the universe as opposed to the modern secular theory of evolution. Uh, The modern theory of evolution proposes that one kind can change into a different kind, and you have those kinds of transcending of boundaries, and yet we would say that God has baked into the universe uh, boundaries that cannot be crossed, and so each animal or plant or fruit produces according to its own kind. Now, the same, of course, is true in the spiritual realm. In fact, we may even say that the physical realm is an illustration of the truth that exists in the spiritual realm. God produces after his kind. Satan produces after his kind. And Jesus makes this abundantly clear. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 6, we read, "...for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit." For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, or nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, therefore, the conclusion of this is that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure, uh, his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his of the heart, his mouth speaks. And this passage uh, could be considered maybe uh, uh, 1 John 3, 4 through 10 in a nutshell. This is really kind of, uh, in some ways, a parallel passage expressing the truth of what is being taught to us here in 1 John. Those who are born of God, John says, produce good fruit. And those who are born of Satan produce evil fruit. 
And so we're going to use the following outline today. Uh, We're going to see a definition. We're going to see the work of Christ and the result of his work repeated. So we have that once, and then we have it a second time. The outline in front of you, uh, I put up on the screen here, probably a little small for you to see there. But that's kind of the general direction of where we're going today. So 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, we read this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him, that is Christ, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one... Uh, who keeps on sinning, has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this... It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John begins this section with a definition. It's always good to start with definitions so that we are uh, always talking about the same thing. Of course, the old adage is he who defines the terms wins the argument, right? And so if we are going to... Uh, be able to clearly express what the passage is talking about, we have to make sure we're talking about the same thing and the same definitions. And so John begins with uh, this statement here in verse 4, where he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And now there are two things that I want to see here in this verse as we begin. The first one is this simple little phrase, makes a practice of sinning. Now the reason I want to clarify this is because of a mistake that could be made. And we already have expressed this in, uh, I believe, the introduction to 1 John as well as the first several messages. But I do want to say it again just for the sake of clarity. Okay, When John writes about a person making a practice of sinning, He is making reference to a person who habitually, regularly, and without guilt or repentance continues in and persists in sin. Because John is using the present tense verb here, uh, the Greek conveys um, an ongoing and continuing lifestyle. Uh, It is a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. The reason that we need to make this clear is because I don't want you to misunderstand these statements and think that John is saying, once you become a believer, from that moment forward, you are sinless. Okay, That's not what John is saying. In fact, we know for sure this is not what he's saying because of what we saw earlier in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So he's saying, you are going to sin, but you are not going to be sinning in the sense of a lifestyle of unrepentant, continued sin. So in chapter 3, as he has been doing through the book, John is referring to habitual sin. Understand that. Mark that down. Habitual sin. One might see 
a parallel between John's understanding of sin and the author of Hebrews who writes in 10.26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth. This is what the author he was saying. You're continuing to do this. You're going on and doing this continually, habitually, deliberately. And so that's the first thing that I want to see from this verse, is that John is simply describing someone who has just a, a complete disregard for the word. The second thing that I want to see from this verse is that he says sin is lawlessness. In the words of the Puritan William Perkins, sin is any breach of the law of God. Okay, uh, And that's what John is saying here. This is, of course, crucial in a day and age when many so-called Christians are downplaying the importance of obedience to God's word. There are, of course, many strategies employed uh, to downplay the law. Some people will try to dismiss the importance of obedience to God's word by saying something like this. Oh, that's just a conscience issue. Oh, that's just a gray area. I think it's somewhat ironic that all of the proposals, of course, conscience issues, the list is growing now, of course, as we know this, right? I mean, things that weren't conscience issues now are suddenly are, are conscience and gray, and everything's getting more muddy and, and grayer. It's not, but that's what people say. I find it a coincidence that all of the gray areas and all of the um, conscience issues coincidentally happen to line up with all of the most up-to-date idols of the day and all of the most up-to-date ideologies of the world. Like suddenly, for 2,000 years, this was not a conscience issue, and now because the world is saying this, it's a conscience issue. We need to be discerning as we look into Scripture. Some are suggesting suddenly and without warning that long-established Christian ethical principles such as sexual ethics, roles of men and women in the church and the home, and abortion are conscience issues. And I would suggest that we need to guard ourselves against these attempts to assault the Word of God. It's one strategy used. Another strategy used to downplay the importance of God's law and His Word is to pass the buck and to pass the blame onto somebody else, right? We might blame our behavior on another person. Okay, this one's very popular with your children, okay? You should not have hit your sister. Well, she did this, and no parent ever said, oh, well, then it's okay to hit them, right? That's not an excuse. You can't pass the blame. We might pass our blame on another person. We might pass the blame on a supposed chemical imbalance or any other kind of thing going on. Paul reminds us, uh, that we should not downplay the word of God. And First Timothy 1.8, he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. You can't abuse it, of course. Romans 7.12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's not bad. Romans 7.16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is what? That it's good. Likewise, Jerry Bridges observes all sin... Even sin that seems minor in our eyes is lawlessness, rebellion. 
All sin, even the sin that you think is insignificant, the sin that you conceal in the back of your mind, it is taking your fist in the face of God and saying, I will not submit to your lordship here. Bridges continues, he says, It is not just the breaking of a single command. It is a complete disregard for the law of God, a deliberate rejection of his moral will in favor of fulfilling one's own desires. Ultimately, then, sin is not a matter of preference. One cannot use the old trope, different strokes for different folks, when it comes to sin. You have no excuse. Your chemistry did not make you do it. Your environment did not make you do it. Your biology did not make you do it. Your upbringing did not make you do it. Your trauma did not make you do it. Sin is lawlessness. Period. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to put this away, to put it aside. And that is the trajectory of the passage in front of us. He gives to us the work of Christ that was designed specifically to deal with this lawlessness. The way that John describes our behavior as Christians uh, begins here in verse 5 by first stating the work of Christ. Verse 5, you know that he, that is Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. It's a very clear statement of purpose. Um, I've I've underlined a few words in your outline in front of you, uh, kind of key words here. In, In this verse, I've underlined, in order to. This indicates the purpose of why Jesus came. He came in order to take away sins. Now, there's a, a very clear implication of this that should be readily apparent. And here is the implication. If Jesus came to take away sins, and his people continue blatantly sinning, then Jesus failed. He came to take away sins. Okay? What this means is that Jesus didn't fail, of course. Because of the success, the successful work of Jesus Christ, Christians will grow in sanctification. It will happen. It's not a question, not a question mark. You don't get to, there's not, no such thing as a two-tier Christianity. I've made it to tier one. I'm in. I can do whatever I want. I can sin however I want. I'm going to heaven when I die. Tier two, that's for the... People who decide that they want to submit to his lordship now. It doesn't exist in Christianity. Jesus is successful in the work that he set out to accomplish. He's always successful in the work that he set out to uh, accomplish. Now, he's going to expound on this implication in just a moment. Uh, but, But just to see how clear this is, if you were to say, the reason that I walked into my living room is to, was to clean it, okay? And your child or spouse walks into the living room and says, boy, this is a mess. You failed. It's not very hard to figure out. Jesus appeared to take away, or he came to take away sins. If he doesn't do that, then he fails in his mission. Now, the point is clear. Jesus succeeds in taking away the sins of his people, His people look and act differently because Jesus always succeeds in everything that he does. How then could we 
pursue those things which were the cause of his death. Why would we want to do such a thing? Now, the foundation of his ability to do this is rooted in the fact that Jesus himself has no what? Look at the verse. He has no sin. Jesus himself has no sin. He couldn't take away our sin if he had to deal with his own sin to begin with. He had no sin of his own. This is the doctrine of the sinlessness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Okay, Jesus knew no sin. He was not a sinner. He was 4.15. Uh, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was uh, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet. What does that say? Without sin. Saying, uh, 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. John 8.29 I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus had no sin. That's the foundation here. Because of that, now he can build on top of that work and make sure that his people are forsaking their sins. Jesus has the authority to do this. And this work that Jesus has is going to work its way out into certain results and implications and applications for his people. The result of his work, I think, should be obvious, but it's stated here in verses 6 through the first half of verse 8, through 8a, okay? He says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. You almost might... Uh, the, the implication here is that at the beginning of verse 6, you have a, a therefore almost. Therefore, because Jesus did this, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. There are four things I want to see, four results of Christ's work uh, in this particular uh, passage. And that is, number one, those who abide in Christ do not continue to sin. In these verses... We have four implications, results of Christ's work. Those who abide in Christ don't continue in sin. Those who do continue in sin don't know Christ. If, if you are, it's very, if you're, if you're practicing righteousness, then you're of him. If you are persisting in sin, then you're not of him. Very simple. The third one is those who practice righteous behavior are righteous. And the fourth one is those who practice sin are children of Satan. Very clearly, if you abide in Jesus Christ, there's going to be a difference in your life. There absolutely is. On this verse, Barnes says, If a man might be a Christian and yet wholly fall away and perish, how could it be said with any truth that such a man sinneth not? How that he doth not commit sin how that his seed remaineth in him and he cannot sin. In other words, what Barnes is saying is that this verse, or these verses, should be taken as proof and evidence of the doctrine of eternal security. You see the logic there? If you're born of Christ, you're not going to sin. So you couldn't sin enough to fall away, because you can't sin if you're in Christ. I'm going to expound on this a minute, because I think it's even more clearly stated uh, in verse 9, but suffice it to say for now, I would suggest that this passage as a whole gives to us a very tight uh, argument 
for the doctrine of eternal security. The Bible says that all who are in Christ cannot persist and continue in sin. Therefore, you cannot fall away. Now, the corollary is true, and the passage gives to us the principle and then the corollary of that. If those in Christ cannot continue in sin, then those who do continue in sin are not of Christ. Notice the second half of verse 6. It says, no one who keeps on sinning has either what? Seen him or known him. That is to say that if you persist in unrepentant sin, you never knew Christ. doesn't matter if you went to church your whole life. If you persist in unrepentant sin, you never knew him to begin with. That's why John said earlier in this epistle, they went out from us because they were not of us. They first were not of us, even though they were physically meeting here, and then they went out because they were not of us. Um, Those who persist in unrepentant sin never knew him. This is the same sentiment as in Matthew 7.23, where Jesus says, I never knew you. He does not say, well, actually, I did know you for a while. You know, there was a stretch of time where I knew you, and you knew me. Um, But then you fell away, and so now I no longer knew you. He says, I never knew you. There never was a time when I knew you. Same here. If you persist in unrepentant sin, you never knew the Lord. The point, this point is serious enough for him to use this phrase to describe what's going on here. Let no one deceive you. He's like, I'm going to tell you the truth, and then I'm going to pause because you might be prone to being deceived in this area, so I'm going to say it clearly. Do not let anyone deceive you about this matter. Verse 7 is where he says this. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now here is the, here's the temptation, and here is the deception that John is warning us of, okay? This is our opening illustration about roots and fruits. Everything produces after its kind, Okay? We have, in Scripture, the principle of a root producing a fruit after its kind. And so the biblical principle is to always keep those together, roots and fruits. Okay? You don't have an apple tree and pick pears off of it, okay? because that's not of its nature. Unregenerate people produce fruit after their nature. Regenerate people produce fruit after their nature. And here's the temptation, the deception, is that we would disconnect the link that exists between roots and fruits. That's the temptation that we have here. That's what this is saying. 
Don't be deceived. If they practice righteousness, then they're righteous. If you don't, if you continue in sin, then you're of Satan. Simple connection. Don't be deceived about that. Matthew 7, 16 through 20. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot, cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. The temptation in this passage is that people would deny the root to the fruit principle. You would deny the connection that exists here. And so here's what you have to understand. It does not matter how much knowledge you have. It does not matter how many degrees you have. It does not matter how many theological words you know. It does not matter how much of the Bible you have memorized. It does not matter how well you can preach or teach or lead a Bible study. If you do not practice righteousness, you are not righteous. End of the conversation. Now, these things certainly are good. I would encourage everyone to memorize Scripture. But the fact that you do that does not automatically translate to you're a believer. Lots of unbelievers memorize Scripture. Okay? The connection in the text is clear. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said, Many in these days, under pretenses of high and glorious enjoyments of God, neglect and despise righteousness and holiness, crying up visions and manifestations when their visions are only the visions of their own hearts and their manifestations are plain delusions. In other words, Thomas Brooks was dealing with a certain variety of charismatic in his own day who were rising up and claiming grand visions and and manifestations. And he says, this means nothing. You guys are despising righteousness. And you're going and claiming that you saw this vision from God? The, the, The connection is between the root and the fruit. Now here's what is so perplexing. God gave to us in his word, in this passage and many others scattered throughout scripture, God has given to us what the sign of being a Christian is. He simply said, okay, uh, here's what it means to be a Christian. You are a Christian, then this is the sign of it. So what's it going to look like in the world? And here's what's so perplexing to me, is why do so many flock to so many false signs? Look at how eloquent of a speaker they were. Look at, look at the supposed visions that they had. Look at this and look at that. Is the person practicing righteousness? Yes or no? That's it. Not whether they can perform a so-called miracle or whether they get invited to speak at a big event. It's whether they practice righteousness. That's the sign. Better to know in fellowship with a single righteous man 
here in your own local church than to know in fellowship with all the world-class Christian personalities combined. Now, I, forgive me for a small rabbit trail here, but I think this is an application and implication of this. I appreciate and enjoy good, sound, biblical conferences, and I know many of you do that as well. And they have their place. Uh, every year we live stream Shepherds Conference here to the church, and um, we, we sometimes go to conferences and appreciate fellowshipping with like-minded believers. My strong conviction is that the local church is better than a conference. It's better. Superior. And there's a lot of reasons that I have that conviction, but one of the reasons for that conviction is that at a conference, you never really have the ability to evaluate people for the, on their fruits. You don't. You go there... And you trust that they're being held accountable by their own church. You trust that they're pursuing righteousness. You trust that their life lines up, but you don't see their private life. You don't see any of that. But you can know the practice and behavior of people right here in this local church. You can see that sign a lot more clearly here. You know who is invested here and who's not. You know who's repentant over sin and who may not be. You know who delights in Christ and who does not. For John, the point here is that you don't become deceived into thinking that you can judge based on other indicators or other markers. Don't be deceived into thinking that Christians can fall away into sin. Or that unbelievers can be righteous apart from Christ. Don't be deceived because many are. And just for the sake of clarity, he says it one other way in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. First obvious point, Satan is real. We all know that Satan has an influence in the world. And I know that there's a lot of debate amongst Christians what level of influence Satan in the demonic realm can have. I don't believe that Satan or a demon can possess a Christian because they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Uh, To some degree or level, I think that that realm could harass a Christian in some kind of a way. Um, The point here, though, is that if you are making a practice of sinning, you are of Satan's seed. You're his offspring. Cain was the seed of Satan. And Lord willing, we're going to see that next week. But if you want to glance down real quick at verse 12 in your Bible, you'll see that he says, Cain, who was of the evil one. Cain was of Satan, and so too all those who persist in unrepentant sin. Jesus also gives us an example in John 8, 44, of those who are of the devil. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Every human being is either a seed of the serpent or a seed of the woman. 
Genesis 3.15. If you persistently and unrepentantly sin, then you are satanic and demonic and a descendant of Satan. Satan is your father, and you delight in doing his desires and fulfilling his will. Your stubborn commitment to yourself and your own interests and desires is evidence that you love Satan as your father and you long to accomplish his work in this world. And by the way, your stubborn insistence to do your own desire for those that, who may be the offspring of Satan, that is all a ploy. <laughs> I'm doing what I want. You're doing what Satan wants. You're under his control. And so this section is quite straightforward. Jesus came to remove sins. If you are his child, you will practice righteousness, root and fruit. If you don't practice righteousness, you're of Satan. And that's the segue to the next section, the second half of verse 8, the work of Christ. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy Satan's works. Jesus is, we might say, driving out the darkness. Jesus binds and plunders the strong man. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Jesus gains the victory over Satan. This is the original promise. God has never wavered for one moment from fulfilling the original promise in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is Jesus Christ, will bruise your head. He will crush Satan. Likewise, Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might do what? Destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Satan has no power. He, he should have just... He persists to rebel against God. And he will burn in a place called hell forever for this. He has no power over us. He has no power over Christ. What's the result of this? Last two verses, verses 9 through 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay, so the point of this part of the text is that God is doing a distinguishing work. And he's saying, Jesus came in order to destroy the work of Satan. Therefore, you're going to easily be able to distinguish Satan's children from God's children. Whatever seed abides in you makes a difference. So successful is the divine influence on the heart and soul of a believer that according to the next half of verse 9, all who are in Christ cannot what? What does it say? Look at verse 9. 
cannot what? Keep sinning. On this, Barnes says, no words could more clearly prove that true Christians will never fall away from grace and perish. Jot it down, underline it, highlight it, mark it, star it. True Christians will persevere. This is the doctrine of eternal security, the preservation of the saints. Now follow the logic here for just a minute. The one who denies this, that is the one who says that you could lose your salvation, you could be saved and then you could fall away from that salvation. You could be truly, genuinely converted. You could be a true child of God and then fall away from that and perish and go to hell for eternity. Okay? The person who believes this believes that the reason you will fall away from grace is because you persist in sin and rebellion against Christ. And you persist, and you persist, and you persist, and you persist, and you continue to persist in sin. And finally, it gets so bad that you've sinned enough that Christ says, you're not my child anymore. That's the belief. False belief, but it's the belief. Okay? However, if 1 John 3.9 is true, rewind since 1 John 3.9 is true, a true believer never could persist in sin to that extent. Because the verse says pretty plainly, he cannot. So the person who says that you can fall away from grace and lose your faith has to replace this with, he can. And the Bible says he cannot. It's kind of a big difference here. Why Can he not sin to this point? Why is this an impossibility for a genuine believer? Because the text says he has been born of God. And God produces after his kind. Can God produce a child of Satan? He's producing, he's giving the new birth. The problem then with Arminian theology in this department is that they think too little of the new birth. Their perception is that the new birth is not ultimately efficacious or effective. Their perception of the new birth is that the new birth is not actually as powerful and as strong as it actually is. The new birth is so powerful and so strong that if you are born again, The text says you cannot continue and persist in sinning. You know what the word for that is? Grace. Efficacious grace. Not potential grace, not mediocre grace, but strong, efficacious, powerful, effective grace that works. Jesus is successful He's not partially successful. He's not potentially successful. He doesn't try it out and give it a shot. 
I gave this person a whirl and they didn't really make it work out, so we're moving on to the next person in the queue. Jesus wins. He succeeds. Therefore, we conclude with John the obvious fact in verse 10, and that is that the children of God and the children of the devil are evident. You don't practice righteousness, you're not of God. And then I like how he throws in here, and the one who doesn't love his brother, by the way, (laughs) that person too. (laughs) He's giving a clear example of this. You want to know what it looks like so it's not just all theory. What does it mean to practice righteousness? Well, it means to love your brother. You don't do that, then you're of Satan. All right, four points of application as we wrap this up. Number one, sorry for the lengthy application here, but pursue Christ's likeness by upholding and obeying rather than dismissing God's word. Do not downplay sin by relabeling it as a conscience issue, a gray area, or a matter of preference. Do not pass a blame for your sin, but take full responsibility. Be serious about sin and the rebellion that is against the Lord. Number two, worship Jesus for successfully taking away sins. And by the way, believe that he successfully takes away sins. Not potentially takes away sins, but successfully takes away sins. Number three, do not be deceived into thinking that God's children will persist in sin. This is the, the, the warning. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into what? Into thinking that God's children will persist in sin or that Satan's children will pursue righteousness. And then finally, worship Jesus for the security and stability he provides in salvation. And if you're one who's not in Christ, my encouragement is to you is to repent and believe in Christ because he's sufficient to save you. And he will save you. Not potentially, not maybe, but he will save you. Thank you, God, for your grace to us and for the gospel message and for the effective nature of the gospel and the work that you do. We rejoice and praise you, Jesus that you came to destroy the works of the devil, that you came to put away sins, and that that work is something that you have succeeded in doing and not something that you have failed at. Let our, str- our trust in you be solidified and strengthened today. In Christ's name, amen.